linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And here we are on the 3rd of June, 2009, which happens to be a significant day for me, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But first I want to thank Homean K, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name at least halfway right, Homean. But in any event, I want to thank you for your kind donation to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. It was very nice of you to send that donation in, and I appreciate it. After today's talk, I'll have an announcement about next week's podcast, along with a few other items. But first, let's get on with today's program, which is yet another talk by Terrence McKenna. However, uh, I guess I should first mention that I'm kind of running out of new McKenna talks to play. And as you will soon hear, some of the topics that Terrence touches on in today's podcast have been touched on by him in one or more of the 70 or so of his talks that I've already podcast. Now, this particular lecture is one uh, that can be found on the net under a variety of titles, the main one being Vision Plants. I think I got over 100 hits when I searched for MP3s of Terrence with that title. However, in a move that I'm sure will infuriate scholars for years to come, I'm going to once again rename one of his talks. So I've titled today's podcast, Shamanism and the Archaic Revival. But I'm sure that you'll be able to come up with an even better title if you think about it. Now after we hear this talk, I'll be back with a few more comments and several emails from fellow saloners. But first here is Terrence McKenna talking sometime back, uh, oh, 15 or 20 years or so ago, about shamanism and the archaic revival that is now well underway. Basically, for myself, my involvement with shamanism has been a deepening meditation over now about 20 years. And it seems to me very fruitful because it continues to change and integrate itself ever more deeply into the meaning of reality at large, so that... uh, For me, shamanism has become a kind of overarching metaphor for not only personal being in the world, but the historical adventure, the being of the species in the world. So I want to talk about it today as an advocate. I want to make it seem indispensable to living a life of right reason in the world. I want to show that without shamanism, the notion of humanism itself is in a kind of jeopardy. And probably most of us can find ourselves in agreement with that. But then I want to leave most of us behind and go further and suggest that this humanness rooted in shamanism is a humanness ultimately rooted in very complex symbiotic relationships with plants and chemicals in the environment. 
want to argue, in fact, that uh, people without plants are in a state of potential neurosis, a state of existential wanting, and, then, and that, in fact, part of the Western dilemma is the sense of abandonment that followed with the breaking off of these symbiotic relations with vision-producing plants uh, that characterized the rise of Western monotheism and even more characterized the rise of modern society. But let me return then to the origins, because this is where I think the case can be made. My interpretation of the time we're living through and this amorphous movement that we all somehow in some way are a part of, which calls itself the New Age or what have you, I call it the Archaic Revival. And the reason I call it the Archaic Revival is rooted in my conviction that it is, in fact, a revivifying of the models and energy forms of archaism. And shamanism, then, is suddenly centrally highlighted. Shamanism was the profession ni plus ultra of the upper Neolithic era. And what was this profession precisely about? Well, it was about exploring the envelope of cognition, pushing against the linguistic membrane of what it was possible to say, symbolize, conceive, and communicate. Now why should one species out of all those competing on the earth attain somehow a kind of mega-adaptive ability that causes a kind of compression of biological time into the phenomenon that we call history. Is it simply, as our theologians have always been forced to conceive, that divine agency entered into the mechanism of the world and somehow set a spark in motion that kindled and grew into humanity? Or is it, as the 19th century explored so exhaustively, the possibility that incremental change can eventually initiate uh, and insinuate into a situation new states of higher order, including even possibly the state of higher order that we call self-reflecting consciousness. But somehow this is no more than a gradual refinement out of previous states of nature. Well, what I want to suggest is that it is a bit of both of these points of view, the divine intervention and the evolutionary. I think what evolutionary biologists have missed in looking at the emergence of human beings out of the primate phylogeny is, generally speaking, the mutagenic influence of foods. 
the fact that a fruit-eating arboreal primate, because of a situation of spreading dryness in the environment, evolved into a pack-hunting creature of the grasslands with an omnivorous diet. And omnivores, by their very nature, expose themselves to a very large number of mutagenic influences. I'm speaking now chemically. Mutagenic influences that interfere with the correct copying of protein, interfere with uh, spacing of children, lactation, uh, interfere with mentation, psychoactive compounds in the food chain. And it's very interesting that as human beings transform themselves into omnivorous pack-hunting omnivores, you begin to see the first faint stirrings of self-reflection. You begin to get the fire pits and later the, ch the chipped flint leavings of earliest Neolithic human tool-making. What this says to me is that there was a unique confluence of factors present in the evolutionary situation that were capable of kindling this ontological transformation of what had previously been the animal mind. And what I suggest this factor is, or was, psychoactive plants in the environment, specifically psychoactive plants in the grasslands environment in which human pastoralism evolved in Africa over a million years ago. The plant must be African. It must be extraordinarily noticeable in the environment. It must not be a deep forest endemic because this is not where human evolution was taking place. The only plant which fits this uh, description is uh, a mushroom of the psilocybin containing variety and it's very easy to see I think that the presence then of uh, psychoactive compounds of this sort in the early human diet set the stage for a number of structural and psychological changes this means that those animals, not including the psychoactive substance in their diet, will be mitigated against and fade from the scene. And by this process, a steady bootstrapping process, self-reflection was born in our species. How do we get from visual acuity to self-reflection? Low doses of psilocybin give increased visual acuity. Medium-range doses of psilocybin give an increased interest in erotic activity. <laughs> you should laugh. There may not be too many laughs with this one. <laughs> Slightly higher doses of psilocybin uh, give an experience of the numinosum, an actual contact with a mystery in the human psyche which is no less mysterious to us today than it was to our ancestors when the last glaciation was retreating against Canada. I mean, don't kid yourself. In the face 
of this, the content of this symbiotic relationship, modernism, rationalism, positivism, all is exposed as just whistling past the graveyard because the numinous depth of the mystery that seems to have called us out of the animal mind is uh, completely impenetrable to modern analysis. That's why even discussing its presence is mitigated against uh, so intensely. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on this early facet of the emergence thing. I want to move ahead and show that as pastoralism developed, as the domestic relationship between cattle, human beings, and mushrooms settled down into a self-reinforcing cycle of consciousness, language arose, religion arose of the goddess-oriented variety, and the connection of the cow to the goddess is there at the dawn time. There is no question about it. Language seems to have been the particular prerogative of women in the early emergent phases. This is uh, uh, possibly because men were involved in hunting activities where great premium is placed on silent stealthiness, while women were engaged in, as gatherers in the hunting-gathering phase, women were engaged in gathering plants. And as all botanists can tell you, gathering plants involves an extensive taxonomic language so that the difference, the minute differences between cereal grains and insects and all of these things need to be linguistically defined and characterized. And to this day, uh, a taxonomic description of a plant is uh, a, a Joycean thrill to read because, you know, subapically glabrous with lanceolate trifolium and so on for many, many lines. Uh, but in a strange way that is a law repeated over and over again through history, each advance somehow outsmarts itself. And the wonderful linguistic depth which women attained as gatherers through the production of folk taxonomy eventually led them to a terrible discovery, the discovery of agriculture. Because they learned that rather than maintain this vast library of shifting information about seasonal plants randomly distributed or distributed according to the whims of nature, they could, in fact, focus on a very small number of plants, learn how to grow these plants, learn their needs alone, and at that point the retreat was on and the dualism was fully in place. And there was that which was domesticated, that which was of the hearth, and that which was of the Ausland, the howling unknown, that which was beyond the pale. I think it was Weston Labar, great old anthropologist, who felt, he said, uh, 
hallucinogens can only be used in hunting and gathering cultures because uh, when agriculturalists use them it makes it impossible to get up at dawn and go hoe the fields <laughs> and so suddenly the gods become the corn gods and the wheat gods gods of symbolizing domesticity and hard labor and uh, and that sort of thing and at this moment of agriculture which led to overproduction which led to trade which led to cities and so forth there is a beginning of the breaking away of this symbiotic relationship which had bound human beings to nature to this time and I don't mean this metaphorically I mean I want to be taken seriously as proposing that the ennui of modernity is the consequences of a disrupted symbiotic relationship between ourselves and vegetable nature and that uh, only a restoration of this in some form is going to carry us into a full inheritance of our birthright as human beings. Now what did this symbiotic relationship consist of? What was the effect of this psychedelic use, this embeddedness of language using, cognition using, but stoned primates in the natural order? Well, I submit to you that what it was or how it acted operationally was as a uh, feminizing pheromone that the continuous exposure to this tremendum represented by the hallucinogenically induced ecstasy acted to continuously dissolve that portion of the psyche which as moderns we call the male ego and I don't mean that it only worked on men. I mean that wherever in human personalities this certain catch began to form and build like a calcareous tumor in the personality, the psycholytic presence of the undeniable fact of the tremendum tended to dissolve this back into Tao, psychic health, however you wish to style it. And that the evolution of language then, setting up this movement off into specialization and a movement away from nature, set up the consequences of the ennui which permeates Western civilization. It is only in Western civilization that you get this steady focus on this monotheistic ideal and working out the implications of what is essentially a pathological personality pattern the pattern of the omniscient omnipresent all-knowing wrathful male deity no one you would invite to your garden party <laughs> It's very interesting that this ideal is the, the only instance, the only hypothetization of deity that I know of that has no congress with woman at any point 
in the theological myth. The god of Western civilization has nothing to do with women. And the presence of the Sophia and the presence of the Mater Dolorosa and all of these things have only been tolerated as heresies uh, in the Western tradition. And it is the Western tradition that has the most continuous break with this symbiotic relationship. In other words, we have wandered into a state of prolonged neurosis because of the absence of a direct pipeline to the unconscious. And we have then fallen victim to priestcraft of every conceivable sort. A similar situation, which may give us some objective perspective on our own, haunts the fate of those portions of Indo-European humanity that went east instead of west. In other words, the whole story of Indian civilization is the story of uh, a masculine, static, hierarchically organized uh, system coming into place in the wake of the loss of the secret of Soma, the loss of the portal to another kind of vegetable gnosis. Well, so provided then that I have made my case and convinced you that this is all gospel, uh, what kind of options are there to someone who believes this? Well, What that means is a brief survey of the anthropological opportunities to explore hallucinogenesis presently afforded by societies living throughout the world. There are, of course, the psilocybin complex discovered by Gordon Wasson, the magic mushrooms of central Mexico, which may have played a role in the Mayan and Toltec civilizations and the wider-ranging pantropical Stropharia cubensis, Psilocybe cubensis, which originated in Thailand but is distributed throughout the warm tropics. Interesting, all of these uh, shamanically sanctioned hallucinogens are in the Indole family, a very narrow family of compounds, with the exception, I, I almost blew it, with the exception of mescaline, which is in a different family, a kind of uh, amphetamine. But all the others, including the morning glory complex with its LSD-like alkaloids, chinoclavine and uh, ergonamine, uh, the psilocybin complex, which involves, as I said, several pandemic species and many highly indemnicized species, especially in the Pacific Northwest. The Iboka cult of Gabon and Western Africa, which is sort of the exotic cousin of all of these things, but nevertheless structurally uh, uh, an indole. And then the short-acting tryptamines and the beta-carbolines. The short-acting tryptamines can be used separately The beta-carbolines, though hallucinogenic in themselves, are usually used as monoamine oxidase inhibitors to enhance the effect of short-acting tryptamines. This is a highly evolved pharmacology and shamanic complex in South America. 
one of the peculiar puzzles of shamanic anthropology and ethnobotany is the clustering of hallucinogenic plants in South America. Why are the old world tropics, the tropics of the Malukas in Indonesia, not equally rich in hallucinogenic flora? No one can answer this question, but certainly Mesoamerica and the New World seems to be uh, the great home of these things. You notice that I don't mention any synthetics in the list. This is because I would sort of like to peel away the vision-producing plants from the whole strom and dang of the, uh, of the drug problem and the drug issue, which is a whole other kettle of fish and has to do with the fates of nations and trillion dollars, scamola, and uh, who knows what else. I, I prefer the uh, organic hallucinogens and recommend them to other people because I think their long history of shamanic usage is, uh, is the first seal of approval that you must look for. I mean, if these things have been used for thousands of years, then you can be fairly confident that they do not cause tumors or uh, uh, miscarriages or that this has, because Nature is far richer in exotic and poisonous and mutagenic and psychoactive chemicals than the human pharmacopoeia. I mean, many things are avoided. There are many potential hallucinogens that are not utilized by human beings. So there has been a certain <clears throat> trial and error selectivity applied to these things. I think it's important to confine oneself to, uh, to compounds which are least insulting to the physical brain, not because the physical brain has anything to do with the mind particularly, but because it certainly has to do with the metabolic uh, uh, end state of indoles. And so things which are alien to the brain should probably not be introduced into it. One way of judging how long a relationship between a human population and a plant has been in place is to see how benign the compound is in human metabolism. I mean, if you take some plant and your knees are feeling rubbery three days later, or your eyes aren't in focus uh, 48 hours later, then this is not a benign compound. This is not a compound where there has been a smooth hand-in-glove fit with the human user. This is why, to my mind, uh, the tryptamines are so interesting and why another reason why, one I just thought of, that I argue for the mushroom as the primary hallucinogen involved in human origins because these things bear a weird resemblance to human neurochemistry. Uh, 
the human brain and indeed all nervous systems run on 5-hydroxytryptamine, serotonin. Uh, N-N-dimethyltryptamine is uh, the hallucinogenic compound of this Amazonian complex is the most powerful of all hallucinogens in the human system and yet clears your system in a matter of minutes. This argues for a great antiquity of the relationship uh, between these things. Well, so then having discussed options, it would remain, it seems, to discuss techniques, since it's almost what Huxley called the gratuitous grace. All conditions for success can be present and one can still fail although not if all conditions for success are present and one does it over and over again. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a temporal variable there. I'm not sure. But uh, technique to me is a kind of a... I'm reluctant to talk about it because it seems so obvious to me what good technique is. I mean, you sit down, you shut up, and you pay attention is basically the good technique. And then the footnotes add on an empty stomach, in a dark room, feeling comfortable. And then sit down, shut up, pay attention. Uh, it's something which happens behind the eyelids. It is not eidetic hallucination, although it begins like eidetic hallucination. I've been talking about this kind of stuff now for about 10 years publicly like this, and one of the major things, the major conceptual and linguistic problem to get over is to actually convey to people what's being talked about. Because probably I would assume 95% of the people in this room have something under their belt which they call drug experience. But did you know that yours is different from everybody else's? And that it, these things range from, you know, mild tingling in the feet to, uh, you know, language fails. And, and the thing to put across is the, the reality of the presence of this thing. And this is the importance in talking to a group with an interest in transpersonal psychology. The situation that we now reside in is not one of seeking the answer, but facing the answer. The answer has been found. It just happens to lie on the wrong side of the fence of social toleration and legality. And so we're just forced into this strange little war dance where Everybody knows that psychedelics are the most powerful instrument for the study of the mind conceivable. And yet, uh, you know, a lot of people are still ratomorphically involved in the academic and university system trying to ignore the fact that the tool has been placed in our hands, 
like the 16th century when the telescope has invented, we have proven that we are not large enough to take the tool into our own hands without a social and intellectual transformation. And I think it must begin in the field of psychology by acknowledging that if if what we are involved in, if what this paradigm transform is, is the archaic revival, and that we really can create a caring, refeminized, eco-sensitive, global world by going back to these very, very old models, then it isn't going to be possible to do it on the strength of political exhortation and rap alone. It's going to have to rest on an experience that just shakes you to your roots, that is real and that is generalized and that can then be talked about and dissected. We need to acknowledge uh, the depth of our dilemma and the real truth, I think, that we know about our options out. I mean, we're playing with half a deck as long as we tolerate uh, that the cardinals of government and science should dictate where human curiosity can legitimately send its attention and where it cannot. I mean, it's a, it's a uh, essentially preposterous situation. It is essentially a civil rights issue because what we're talking about here is the repression of a religious sensibility. In fact, not a religious sensibility, the religious sensibility, not built on some con game spun out by eunuchs, but based on the symbiotic relationship that was in place for our species for 50,000 years before the advent of history, writing, priestcraft, and propaganda. So it's a clarion call to recover a birthright, however uncomfortable uh, that may make us. Uh, a call to realize that life lived in the absence of the psychedelic experience that primordial shamanism is based on is life trivialized, life denied, life enslaved to the ego and its fear of dissolution in this mysterious mama matrix which is all around us and which apparently extends to infinity and where our historical future actually lies. This is the other thing. It is now very clear that techniques of mind-human uh, interfacing, pharmacology of the synthetic variety, uh, all kinds of manipulative techniques all kinds of data storage, imaging, and retrieval techniques. All of this is coalescing toward the potential of a truly demonic or angelic kind of self-imaging of our culture. 
and the people who are on the demonic side are fully aware of this and hurrying full tilt forward with their plans to capture everyone as a 100% believing consumer inside some kind of beige furnished fascism that won't even raise a ripple. So, so the shamanic response in this situation, I think, is to push the art pedal through the floor. This is again one of the primary functions of shamanism and the function that is tremendously synergized by the psychedelics. They are, in fact, if, as I spoke of them earlier, pheromones which dissolve the male ego, then they are also pheromones which synergize the human imagination, cause us to connect and reconnect the contents of the collective mind in ever more architectonic, implausible, and yet self-fulfilling ways. I really think that the only escape from the trap which post-industrial, male-dominated, politically manipulative, drug-running, urban technocracy has in store for us, the only escape is a forward escape a kind of rushing past it and brushing it aside by virtue of an immense expansion of unpredictable creativity. But what shamanizing means in the ordinary folkloric level is healing. And the art function is somewhat in the shadow. But in the face of the need for a planetary healing, the art-making function of the shaman is going to stand front and center because what this art-making function is is generating a new guiding image of ourselves. This is why it relates so fundamentally to psychology. We need a new paradigmatic image that can take us forward through the narrow neck of historical forces that we can feel impeding and resisting this more expansive, more at ease, more human, more caring dimension that is insisting on being born. And so, in terms of political obligation, in terms of reforming and trying to save the soul of psychology, in terms of trying to goose along, connecting up the end of history with the beginning of history. All of this impels us, I think, to look at shamanism as the paradigmatic model, to take its techniques seriously, even those which challenge uh, the divinely ordained covenants of the constabulary because if, if we don't do that, as I said, we're not playing with a full deck. You know, years and years ago, before the term psychedelic was settled on, uh, 
there was just a phenomenological description. These things were called consciousness-expanding drugs. Well, I think that's a very good term. Think about our dilemma on this planet. If the expansion of consciousness does not loom large in the human future, what kind of future is it going to be? Now, to my mind, the, the psychedelic position is most fundamentally threatening when fully logically thought out because it is an anti-drug position. And make no mistake about it, the issue is drugged. How drugged shall you be? Or, to put it another way, consciousness. How conscious shall you be? Who shall be conscious? Who shall be unconscious? And uh, imagine if the Japanese had won World War II, taken over America, and introduced an insidious drug which caused the average American to spend six and a half hours a day consuming enemy propaganda. But this is what was done, not by the Japanese, by ourselves. This is television. Six and a half hours a day. Average. That's the average. So there must be people out there hooked on 24 hours a day, or I visit people in L.A. who have one set on in every room, so they're racking up a lot of time for the rest of us. Uh, you see, what is needed is an operational awareness of what we mean by drug. A drug is something which causes unexamined, obsessive, habituated behavior. You don't examine your behavior, you just do it. You do it obsessively. You let nothing get in the way of it. This is the kind of life we're being sold on every level. To watch, to consume, to buy. The psychedelic thing is off in this tiny corner, never mentioned and yet it represents the only counterflow toward a tendency to just leave people in designer states of consciousness. Not their designers, but the designers of Madison Avenue, the Pentagon, so forth and so on. This is really happening. I mean, it's uh, only a matter of how tight you draw the metaphor that you realize, you know, I've been coming and going from Los Angeles recently a lot, and when the plane swings out over the uh, eastern part of the city, looking down, it's like looking at a printed circuit. All these curved driveways and cul-de-sacs with the same little modules installed on each end of them, and you realize, you know, that as long as the Reader's Digest stays subscribed to and the TV stays on, these are all interchangeable parts. The, this is this nightmarish thing which McLuhan and Wyndham Lewis and others foresaw, the creation of the public. The public has no history, 
has no future, lives in a golden moment created by credit which binds them ineluctably to a fascist system that is never criticized. This is the ultimate consequence. This is the ultimate consequence of having broken off this symbiotic relationship with the vegetable, feminine, maternal matrix of the planet. This is what ended partnership. This is what ended balance between the sexes. This is what set us on the long slide. We can now examine the options available and put in place archaic options which will restore this balance. And to the good credit of people like Dick Schultes and Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman, we have in this century taken into our hands the tools, the information, and the means to do this. But psychology, there had better not be a Nuremberg because not enough people have stood up for this. People have contented themselves with ratomorphism for 25 years when they knew in their hearts that it was wrong. Feeling guilty out there? <laughs> you could cheer to show that it wasn't you. <laughs> So now, I think, uh, you know, the culture crisis grows ever more uh, intense, the stakes rise ever higher. If there were ever a time to be heard and be counted and try and clarify thinking on these issues, it would be now because, uh, you know, there is a major attack on the Bill of Rights underway in the guise of a so-called drug bill and somehow the drug issue is even more frightening than communism even more insidious McCarthy told America that communism was under the bed he was wrong Ronald Reagan and George Bush tell America that drugs are in the living room and they're right it is here, it is real, it is the hydrogen bomb of the third world. And the quality of rhetoric, the quality of rhetoric emanating from uh, therapists and psychologists and psychoanalysts is going to have to radically improve or we are going to have happen to us what happened to genetics in the Soviet Union. We're going to be Lysenkoized. We're going to be made lily white and all opportunity for exploring this dimension is going to be closed off almost as a footnote to the suppression of these synthetic poisonous narcotics which are mostly dealt by governments anyway. But the psychedelic issue, as I said, it's a civil rights issue. It's a civil liberties issue. The reason women couldn't be given the vote in the 19th century there was a very simple overpowering reason that was always given it would destroy society and that's the reason given 
this was also the reason why the king could not give up a divine right, the right of consanguinity. Chaos would result. And this is why we're told drugs cannot be legalized, because society would disintegrate. This is just nonsense. Most societies have always operated in the light of various habits based on plants. The whole history of mankind could be written as a series of made and broken relationships with plants. Think about the influence of tobacco on mercantilism in 17th and 18th century Europe. Think about the influence of coffee on the modern office worker, or the way the British influenced opium policy in the Far East to rule China, or the way the CIA used heroin in the American ghettos in the 1960s to choke off black dissent and black dissatisfaction with the war. History is about these plant relationships. They can be raised into consciousness integrated into social policy and used to create a more caring, meaningful world, or they can be denied the way sexuality was denied until the force of the work of Freud and others just made it impossible to maintain the fiction any longer. This choice of how quickly we develop into a mature community able to address this issue is entirely with us, I think. And certainly people like Stan Groff and others have worked valiantly to keep this kind of thing alive. But my God, you can count them on the fingers of one hand. We're not just talking about passive agents of transformation and slideshows of alien worlds and stuff like that. <laughs> the central mystery is that the thing is animate, that, that there is at the center of these experiences an organized intellecti, an ally, a spirit, an other, and an I-thou relationship is possible. And this is just, now this leads us to the, to the edge of simply wild hyperbole and out into the realm of uh, the utterly improbable. We have no place in our worldview for something like this. I mean, is it an extraterrestrial? Is it Gaia? Is it, uh, as some Jungians have said, merely autonomous fragments of the personality of, that have slipped from the reins of the ego's control and now return to haunt us as gnomes, kabiri, water spirits, and sylphs of the air? Well, I don't know, but... <laughs> but the... Uh, <laughs> who does know? Yeah. <laughs> The, the point not to be lost sight of is that, again, this is real. This is not rare. This is common on psilocybin. What, the, what you don't get with, I don't believe anyway, that what you don't get with yoga, what you certainly don't get with mystical experience, is any degree of on-command repeatability 
of these bizarre mental and physical states. And yet with something like DMT, if you get somebody who, who is transported into a realm of self-transforming, chattering machine elves, chances are they will get elves every time. Well, imagine the impact of this on the rational mind that you can be swept into a space where you, you, have to entertain the possibility that is this a UFO abduction or am I dead or am I just simply, God forbid, totally insane now or what is happening? The animate intellecti at the center of the experience is, I think, the greatest challenge for psychology, for historical assimilation of this phenomenon generally. Because what is it? I mean, our science is trained to allow the slim possibility of extraterrestrials, and so our electro, I mean, our radio telescopes point to the stars, shifting millions of signals at a time, searching for a radio civilization. But what is it going to do to the forward thrust of historical continuity if right next door in the human mind there is an other, so other, that it cannot be assimilated and yet so accessible that it's only a matter of choice to stand in its uh, awesome presence. Uh, I don't have the answer to this question. I think it's amazing that I'm able to articulate the question because it is, <laughs> you know, it is, it is against 500 years of, uh, of expectation and programming that we are finally able to wake up almost as from a fever and say, my God, nature is alive. It's talking to us. It's alive. No, you know, this is not a metaphor. I am not a romantic. This is not an artistic or aesthetic stance. Nature is alive. Someone is on the line. And then, you know, as far as who, I, I don't rush in to say. I mean, I'm very wary of anyone who claims to know who because the, the problem seems to me one of great subtlety and depth. How can we know who is the other until we know who is the self? And perhaps one problem will cast uh, significance on the other. That yes, if we can encounter it temporarily through these shamanic means, then must it not become the historical arrow of our becoming? Was, must we not then recognize that this numinosum must rise into history as a, a, a fact of realizing the eschaton? That's what I think, that actually the, the shamans are seeing and have always seen some kind of transhistorical object, some kind of vast uh, hypostatization of ourselves as deity that is casting a shadow back through time and that all magic, all religion, all vision is an anticipation of this future state. 
What excites me is the notion that we may have reached the point in this process where we can consciously know that that is what we are doing, that that is what we are about, that our task is the architectonic expression of the divine other, and then set about it without any more haggling and uh, tail-dragging. In other words, to realize what our destiny is will cause us to move toward it with much greater uh, facility and smoothness. This, this is a real problem. I think it goes to the general state of the drug problem, which is it is one of utter ignorance and victimization. When the government whines and yaps about education, but they're not doing any education. I mean, the, what do you mean by dope? I mean, they have so linguistically impoverished us that we can't even make a distinction between marijuana, methamphetamine, cocaine, LSD, what have you. A whole new vocabulary of consequences has to be created. That's what I said earlier. What we don't want is habitual, obsessive, unexamined activity. We don't want it in commerce. We don't want it in drug use. We don't want it in social relations. We don't want unexamined, habitual forms of activity that are obsessively expressed. What we do want is conscious, caring, self-examining, inquisitive, uh, thinking people and institutions. So whatever mitigates against that has to be seen as a drug. And things like television, money, propaganda, all of these things then are seen as great evils, which they may not have been seen that way before. We have to get smart. You have to be smart to use drugs. You have to be smart to survive a planetary catastrophe. Now, our ancestors were smart. They got us this far. It wasn't easy. Five times the ice moved south from the poles. Five times the human family was islanded and divided by walls of moving ice. It hasn't been easy all the way along. Until a hundred years ago, there were no inoculations for infectious diseases. Most women died in childbirth. Many children died in childbirth. The average lifespan, even in Western societies, was 35 years old. So, it's, you know, it's going to be tough until we get to heaven. There has to be uh, intelligence. And, you know, one way to be intelligent is to decondition. Our lives are not going to make sense if we tolerate propaganda in our lives. You cannot be half slave and half free. You cannot be half hip and half yup. <laughs> you know? So uh, the main thing with the drug thing is to get smart, get real smart, fast, or you will lose your children and your mind and your freedom because all this is at stake. This audience is, has supposedly a stake in psychology, in transpersonal psychology, which means the destiny and fate of the human mind. So 
getting smart about the, the natures and opportunities of chemistry, archaic and modern, should be right at the top of the agenda. We're going to have to end this. Thank you for your tolerance. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Did you catch that part just now where Terence said, one way to be intelligent is to be deconditioned to the propaganda we are all fed every day. As he said, you cannot live half slave and half free. Well, I've been thinking about that for a long time now. In fact, I've just spent the last six and a half years struggling to organize my thinking about that idea. And the result is my novel, The Genesis Generation, which I finally finished writing two days ago. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, today holds special significance for me and for two reasons. The first one is that as soon as I get this podcast posted online, I'll begin recording the last chapter of that book for release next week as an audiobook. And so next week's podcast will consist of me reading the first chapter of The Genesis Generation. And I'm telling you that as a warning to our fellow saloners who are less than impressed with my personal chatter on these podcasts. In fact, I've got to read part of a blog posting that a saloner sent me and which put a huge smile on my face. I don't know the name of the blog, but the poster was someone who calls himself or herself Laser Cave, or maybe it's PDXFF, whatever that means. Anyway, here's the part of that posting that I really liked. It goes... Oh, and for those of you who frequent the Psychedelic Salon podcast, the six casts on chaos, creativity, and imagination from last December are an extremely rewarding listen. Maybe this is old news, but remember when listening to these to keep your ear tuned closely, when Lorenzo is saying his usual ridiculous commentary, he totally gives props to Tim Donovan on one of the tracks. It's quite amusing. <laughs> Well, besides the part about my usual ridiculous commentary, which is uh, what you happen to be listening to right now, I might add, I uh, wondered about the part about Tim Donovan, because not only do I not have any memory of saying that, I can't even recall who Tim Donovan is, uh, which uh, for me reinforces the idea that, uh, yeah, I guess my commentary must really be ridiculous. But since I belong to the Brendan Behan School of Public Relations, that states one shouldn't worry about what anybody says about you as long as they spell your name right. So, thanks for the publicity. We'll take it any way we can get it. But next week's program will be all me, and so don't say you weren't warned. And I guess I shouldn't just leave you hanging about the theme of my novel. Basically, it's about awakening, transformation, and Terence's dream of an archaic, psychedelic society. And it's uh, basically the story about the transformation of a 29-year-old yuppie geek into an underground hero in the psychedelic community. As I said, I'll be posting the first chapter in next week's podcast, and assuming that I can finish recording and building the delivery infrastructure by then, it will be available for purchase for the princely sum of $12, which will run you about a dollar an hour, as it takes about 12 hours to hear the entire book. But that's for next week. Today I want to mention one more personal item, though, because this date, June 3rd, 
is a particularly significant one for me because of where I was and what I was doing 40 years ago today. I would ask you to think about what you were doing 40 years ago today, but from what I know about our fellow saloners, most of you weren't even a twinkle in your parents' eye back then. In my case, however, I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, serving as the navigator for a U.S. Navy task force that arrived at the site where the submarine Scorpion went down a year earlier. We were to spend the next couple of months floating over that spot while the Bathyscaphe Trieste made nine dives of more than 11,000 feet down to investigate the cause of her loss and the loss of the 99 brave men who went down with her. And so I wanted to remember those men and their families today. Well, that's enough of the heavy stuff for a while. As I mentioned earlier, we may be coming to the end of the line on New Talks by Terrence McKenna. And while I still have a significant amount of material from the Timothy Leary archive, as well as some interviews I want to do, still I've been thinking that maybe we ought to make a few changes in these podcasts. Nothing radical, but maybe spice it up a bit. And so I'm thinking about adding a Skype record button to our notes from the Psychedelic Salon website for you to leave audio comments, some of which maybe I could integrate into the podcast. I'm still not clear on how to implement this because it most likely will involve finding some volunteers to listen to the comments and uh, help the most relevant ones bubble to the top and find their way into a podcast. And I've got some other ideas about the salon and associated websites becoming uh, more of a social gathering place where we can find and talk with the others without any commercial interference by banner ads and stuff like that. Again, since I have no clear ideas on how to make this a reality, my guess is that you and some of our other fellow saloners will help us evolve our little community even a little further along. Now, one of the things that has prompted me to think in this direction is due to all of the great music that our fellow saloners have been sending. Hopefully, one day we'll have a podcast from the salon that consists only of music. As you know, I occasionally play a song at the end of a program, and in podcast number 120, I included uh, several songs that were sent to me. And just this past week, I received a link from some music from Shah, who is a music producer and fellow saloner who joins us each week from his home in Israel. In it, he has uh, used a few samples from the salon, and for what it's worth, I really enjoy listening to all of the interesting things that Shah and some of the others uh, have done with samples from the salon. Hopefully, uh, I'll remember to add a link to his music along with the program notes for this podcast, which, uh, as you know, you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And over the past few months, I've received dozens of pieces of music created by our fellow saloners, including a great CD from Clint Avery that took me back to some of my first encounters with our sacred medicines. And that was quite an interesting experience, I'm here to tell you. Also, uh, Greg S. sent me an experimental meditation video that I plan to test drive on my next journey into entheospace. So, all in all, uh, I am overloaded with wonderful new sights and sounds. And I wish I had uh, time to mention everyone who has sent me something along these lines. But I do want to mention one more group whose music I've grown very fond of. And that is the group Tibet to Timbuktu. I first heard them on Queer Ninjas bi-weekly podcast over at the uh, Cannabis Podcast Network at dopefiend.co.uk. 
In fact, uh, the second time I heard them was on the Dope Fiends podcast itself, and then again on BB's Bungalow. And uh, BB, or Black Beauty, by the way, is also the person whose silky voice you just heard in the break between the lecture and this commentary. And if you haven't spent any time in BB's Bungalow yet, well, you simply don't know what you're missing. Anyway, if, like me, you are already a regular listener to the programs on the Dope Beans Network, you've already heard several cuts from the Tibet to Timbuktu CD. But that isn't going to keep me from playing one, too, and I'll do that at uh, the end of today's podcast, uh, thanks to their permission for letting me do so. Now, let's see. Uh, there are a couple more things I want to pass along, and uh, then I'll be out of here for today. Oh, yeah, Burning Man. First of all, uh, here is a little story that doesn't actually have a reason for me to tell it here, other than the fact that I think it points out why things like Burning Man, the Salon, and other ways that we are going about finding each other that are popping up all over the place. Here is uh, what fellow Saloner Barbara S. wrote. Hi, Lorenzo. I just got back from one of the East Coast regional burns, Playa del Fuego, and was thinking of you. I met some of the others. There was a small camp of wonderful people that played some of your podcasts over the weekend. I stopped by to chat for a while with them, and now I have some new friends. And a little piece of them came home with me from the playa in the form of six baby heirloom tomato plants that they gifted me when I mentioned making some homemade sauce. Thank you for helping to bring more of us together. Well, thanks for the kind words, Barbara, but it wasn't me who brought you together. It was those wonderful people who were playing the podcast in the first place. Not to mention all of the people who were involved in putting on the Afterburn event. So uh, thanks to all of you. But your story does remind me that I should let you know that our Burning Man plans are in a state of flux right now. Unless there is another change, I'm afraid that the Angel Oasis where I was going to camp isn't going to appear after all this year. I'm sure things will work out, because they always do, but until I get my audiobook online, I'm just not going to be able to even think about Burning Man for a while. But I'll have more news for you about this year's burn uh, sometime later this month. Another email comes from Jimmy M., and I'll read a few portions of that for you right now. Jimmy says, First, I want to tell you how much I appreciate your podcasts. I can't stop listening to them, and every time I re-listen to one, I find new things. They almost seem variable in the contents. Well, you're not alone there, Jimmy. I've heard some of Terrence's talks a dozen times already, and I still seem to hear something new each time I listen to one of them. Then Jimmy goes on, Living in a country like, and I won't mention where he lives just to give him a little anonymity, uh, but he says, living in a country like this, where there's zero tolerance, it's very hard to find places where you can interact with other psychedelic people. And you can't really mention anything about psychedelics either because of all the bullshit propaganda our government pours out. And I may have an idea about that situation, Jimmy, that uh, I'll pass along next week. Anyway, he goes on to say, I noticed that you have a comment section where people can discuss with each other but I was thinking that this has probably been mentioned before, but wouldn't it be great to have an IRC server where listeners could interact with each other? I would really like to have a place where I can talk to people who have an understanding for the psychedelic use and philosophies. You're probably pretty busy with keeping the salon up and running, so if you want to, I could help with setting it up. 
would be super great, don't you think? Well, as you might guess from what I said earlier, I have also been thinking about these things, Jimmy. So uh, for you and the other saloners who have offered their services, all I can say is that I am very appreciative of your offers to help, and once I get this book project behind me, I plan on focusing on some of the issues that you raise. Now there's one more part of his email that I'd like to read for you because it is something that seems to come up with some regularity. Here is how he uh, concluded his email. Oh, and another thing. This might sound cheesy, but what the hell. During my first experiences with psychedelics, I was horrified by the effects. I had a shitty setting and was accompanied by people who were frightening throughout the whole trip. Needless to say, it was one of the worst evenings in my life. I tried LSD a few times after that, but I couldn't relax and enjoy the trip. The first and worst experience was rooted too deep inside of me. But after listening to these podcasts, I've been able to relax and enjoy the psychedelic universe more and more, and I gain more confidence and insight every time now. Thanks for opening my eyes and expanding my consciousness with every podcast you deliver. Well, thanks for the kind words, Jimmy, but you should be thanking yourself. You are the one who opened your own eyes. Now, some of our speakers in the salon may have provided the catalyst you needed, but you are the person who did the work. The great work, some people call it. And uh, so it is me who should be thanking you, you and all of our other fellow saloners who are all doing our best to inch our way forward, gaining a little more insight every day. And now, uh, maybe it's time that you and I should spend a few minutes just to ponder some of the thoughts that the Bard McKenna passed along to us just now. And to set the mood for that, I'll be playing a cut titled Beautiful Girl from the CD Music is Life by my new favorite group, Tibet to Timbuktu. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.
Me va a volar 